Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. In addition to penalties up to $1,000 per instance of data leakage or sharing experts' information, it also comes with up to one year in jail per violation. So I don't want to scare anyone, but you know, there are consequences to what used to be the norm. And it's still the norm for many companies to run Facebook or Meta or Google or TikTok or any other pixels. I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but now it comes with the consequences. Hi, welcome to The Threat Show. I'm Darren Kinlan, VP of Technology here at Fletch, and my usual co-host, Chris Rylder, is out today, but he'll be joining us again in future episodes. That said, our special guest this week is Ivan Sarni, the CEO and co-founder of Feeroot, a behavior-based web security monitoring platform dedicated to helping their customers do business securely online by diminishing a threat actor's ability to breach customer data or damage websites via client-side attacks. Under Ivan's guidance, Feeroots developed proprietary technology that detects third-party scripts and their level of access to mission-critical data entered by users on the web, such as registration or payment pages, as well as website logins. He also serves on the Standards Council of Canada GDPR Committee, a national forum that develops and adopts standards and other guidelines to and tools to provide Canadian organizations with effective means to comply with GDPR. Previously, he helped found several other software companies and has worked as an architect for a wide range of organizations from Maple Leaf Foods to Bank of Montreal. Welcome to the show, Ivan. Thank you for having me. Excited. Yeah. So we'll be talking with Ivan about malvertisements, pixel tracking, his advice for protecting small, medium-sized businesses. But first, let's run through this week's threat landscape and trending threats. It's been kind of an interesting week so far. I think last week we had a dip in terms of the number of major threats that we were seeing. Now we've seen a bit of consolidation related to it, and we're starting to see more new threats emerge just within the past week. Looking at the details, we see a lot of activity transitioning from emerging to trending, almost a 50% increase in trending threats with maybe about 16 to 17% going mainstream. If we look at the details behind these stats though, let's look at some of the more specific interesting threats that we found over the past week. Topping of our list, Apple has actually responded to a new remote code execution vulnerability tied to WebKit. And they've tried to update this particular vulnerability by deploying a rapid security response one to now I think it's the third iteration of the patch. And the reason why is because the first time they issued the patch, it actually broke functionality involving Facebook, Instagram, and Zoom. So this is an interesting evolution of what started out as a new feature that Apple had, rapid security response, where they're now exercising it more quickly. But as you can imagine, the faster they are to respond, the more likely they are to iterate through and have to roll out subsequent patches because it didn't quite work correctly the first, second, or third time. We'll probably see more of this in the future, but keep that in mind whenever you see rapid security responses. Keep in mind that it might take a couple of iterations for Apple to get this right. Second on our list, Fortinet actually has a new set of remote code execution vulnerabilities discovered, specifically as it relates to turning on deep packet inspection within the Fortinet firewalls. 
If you have that feature enabled, an attacker can send through malicious packets, causing them to fully compromise the Fortinet appliance. As you know, we've covered Fortinet in the past. This is probably the second or third particular critical vulnerability tied to the platform. As more and more security researchers dive deep on this software, we're likely to uncover other future vulnerabilities similar in scope and severity in the future. And not the only ones, but we've seen vulnerabilities tied to the MoveIt secure file transfer appliance by Progress Software in the past month. We're now in the, I guess, third iteration of those vulnerabilities. Same type of thing where security researchers have now uncovered yet another particular remote code execution vulnerability that can allow an attacker to gain access to this appliance and steal all of the data that supposedly it was designed to securely transfer. It's likely we'll see other (laughs) evolutionary vulnerabilities getting discovered related to this software as security researchers dig further into this class of appliance. And if you were thinking about potentially transitioning off of MoveIt, maybe to a different type of secure file transfer appliance, you might consider ShareFile which is Citrix version of the software. But unfortunately, they also are suffering remote code execution vulnerabilities with their software as well. So this is a difficult problem that many organizations are experiencing. From a security standpoint, it might be best to pause or disable secure file transferring for a while until some of these issues are resolved or alternatively move over to a completely different vendor that does not necessarily have these security issues. For enterprise organizations that have the budget to support it, maybe having multiple secure file sharing options with different vendors could be a good strategy when dealing with these sorts of issues. Fourth on our list, there's a brand new type of ransomware that was discovered by Trend Micro and other security researchers called Big Head. Now, This particular ransomware is not particularly unique, although they are distributing Windows and I think it's Microsoft Office updates, fake updates through malicious advertisements. This is a particular problem for a number of different ad providers out there as they try to thwart these sorts of attacks. And quite frankly, it's a very common mechanism for ransomware to propagate in most advertising networks. I'm curious, Ivan, from your perspective, do you see malicious advertisements ever (laughs) going down? And what are some of the mechanisms that like an ad operator might consider deploying to help thwart these sorts of attacks? That's a interesting, big and loaded question. (laughs) Thanks for asking. (laughs) If I pull out my crystal ball to look into the future and predict the future, it's going to tell me it's unknown whether it's going to keep on going up or down. But looking at the past, it keeps on increasing. It's it's, it's definitely an evolving vector of threats, to say at least. So from my experience, from what we see on the market, because we specialize in client-side security and privacy and introducing controls and you know, ensuring companies are doing everything that they want to be doing there. We do see it. It's a very common threat vector and companies, organizations, security engineering teams and AppSec teams are paying a lot of attention. But the concern here is that it's very elusive because when a malicious ad is served into the browser, 
and it's served directly from, let's say, compromised ad network, security engineers have almost zero visibility and no awareness of what is actually happening. So it is a lucrative way to introduce a risk and introduce a threat. So I don't see it disappearing anytime soon. That's mm -hmm. for sure. Just because of the reason I just mentioned, because it is very elusive, it's very attractive as well. Because it can, you can have a dwell time of months, if not years, because, you know, if one in a thousand of visitors is served a malicious ad, there's very little chance of anyone to actually detect that, especially on a site with the high volume of visitors. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how the attackers are using that probabilistic approach to evade future detections. And if you're a media operator serving ads as part of your day-to-day -day business, it's very difficult to protect against this sort of attack. You're pretty much relying on the advertising operator having thorough screening of their advertisements before even delivering the ads. But it's it's a complicated problem for sure. I can add just one comment there. What actually adds to the effectiveness of that threat vector is the trust factor and the reputation of the website. When you're visiting a website and a company that you trust, you work with, you're a customer or you're reading their news, you have this relationship and a more of an open trust to that organization. So your visitors then are a lot more inclined to actually click and follow the direction, especially if they're just common people that are less educated or less experienced in the tech, right? So that, that what makes that vector even more effective. Yeah, I mean, it can seriously impact revenue for, let's say, a media outlet because it's another reason why users might consider implementing ad blockers, honestly. It's not just because they don't want to see unrelated ads, but because they don't want to get delivered malicious advertisements to begin with. So for that very reason, <laughs> you know, making sure that the ads you're showing are safe is paramount, not just to protect your users, but also to ensure the revenue stream remains high for that media outlet. This is a hard problem for sure. So you actually just touched on a big dilemma. It's uh, balancing the business needs because business needs to advertise and you know attract customers, readers, whatever else that they do. But at the same time, they want to make sure that they don't, they don't cause the damage to the users and themselves as well. So it's a big dilemma. It's not easy to solve. Another big, complicated, thorny issue that's come up as of yesterday is actually one where tax preparation companies, some of the big three, were now raked through the coals for inadvertently or maybe intentionally sharing private taxpayer data with social media outlets, not just for the past weeks or months, but potentially for years. We've seen Meta and Google get slapped with fines related to privacy violations similar to this in the past. But I think one of the interesting things that is kind of an evolutionary step is now lawmakers are going after the actual companies that had turned on those social media friendly functions, which enabled these social media companies to even collect this data to begin with. I'm curious, Ivan, this is kind of a unknown pitfall when let's say a marketer is looking at their content management platform and they see, oh, I wanna necessarily you know, cater to the next generation of customer. And I see that there's a button saying, turn on social media. And then suddenly 
all of this happens behind the scenes. How can they reconcile this? Like, what do you see as the best way to protect organizations from these sorts of pitfalls? Ooh, that's another very loaded question. <laughs> and by the way, what you also kind of made me think about is the cultural transformation of what is the norm? Because just like you said, companies need to attract customers. Right. Companies cannot survive without customers, right? So there are legitimate reasons and purposes for advertising, tracking, attribution, metrics, gathering, data analysis. Those are very legitimate purposes for analyzing traffic and, and collecting data for business legitimate purposes. And it has been the norm for more than a decade to run trackers, cookies, pixels, anything else that companies do to understand the, their audiences, to measure effectiveness of their digital ad campaigns and so on. What is changing? What had already changed? And what is changing in the perception of AppSec teams, privacy teams, uh, general consoles of organizations of any sizes from small, medium to even large enterprises is that what used to be the norm to add a Google Tag Manager or another Tag Manager and run any kind of ad, you know, attribution metrics campaigns, any kind of beacons, it is the norm. But that norm can cause serious consequences. Like even then the US taxpayers, there is, you know, in addition to penalties up to $1,000 per instance of data leakage or sharing taxpayers' information, it also comes with up to one year in jail per violation. So there could be, I'm not, I don't want to scare anyone, but there are serious, you know, there are consequences to what used to be the norm. But, and it's still the norm for many companies to run Facebook or Meta or Google or TikTok or any other pixels. I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but now it comes with the consequences. And that will only get stricter and stricter over time because it's already getting stricter. Wow. This is a huge problem for privacy teams. I mean, as you mentioned, you can't necessarily just disable all tracking, all advertisement tracking, right? So you have to figure out what's that sweet spot? What's the balancing act that teams need to, to figure out here in order to identify ways to use this technology safely to help improve business operations, but still protect customer privacy information from getting leaked is it a matter of going through page by page, interface by interface to see if, okay, is there any sensitive data on this page? If there is, don't turn on any tracking and then doing like a full scale audit from an AppSec perspective, or are there any other better ways to approach this? First thing first is I just want to pick on a couple of definitions first. Sure. A data leak. Let's yeah. define what a data leak, because... Meta or any other pixel or TikTok pixel collecting user information was never really considered a data leak before. That was a legitimate purpose. What that's why we run those pixels on, you know, to track users. However, I was just to clarify on July 5th, I read a report that just came out on July 5th around healthcare industry. And mm -hmm. the report was of a top 10 data breaches in the healthcare industry in the first six months of this year in 2023. Number four was defined and it was clearly pixel collecting healthcare information of visitors mm -hmm. to healthcare portals when they're scheduling appointments, booking doctor's appointments and doing anything online. So right. to define a data leak, it now includes pixels, trackers, collecting information they're not supposed to be collecting that is protected whether by HIPAA or GLBA or any other act or any other law. So that's first thing to define, like, Pixels collecting data can be considered a data leak. 
second item on your question was like, what can be done or what is the norm? What AppSec teams can do? And let me start first with what is typical, what we see AppSec teams do is they do actually a really good job usually at reviewing their code. They use code scanning tools. They use all kinds of security scanners to vet the new website code updates or web applications updates in the development environment and in stage before they push it to prod. And then they push it to prod and everything is good. Everything is checked out. And then marketing adds Google Tag Manager or any other tag manager. <laughs> the tag manager loads, you know, 18, 55, no matter, doesn't matter how many pixels and libraries and you know, jQuery libraries from third-party servers. And all of that work was almost like irrelevant because now you have you know, pixels, scripts, libraries loaded directly into the user session. So it's almost like the old shareware kind of apps that you would install on your computer right. that would install everything else, right? So that's what they do today, but that is not lo no longer enough to vet out and prevent any downstream changes in a client-side environment because the client-side code on websites, web applications is assembled in real time in the browser mm -hmm. at the moment when the visitor clicks on a link and then you know the website web app pulls all of those library scripts, CSS elements, images, ads, tag manager is loaded and that tag manager chain loads you know, you know a bunch of other scripts. And uh, that happens in the first five, six, seven hundred milliseconds of the load. And wow. there, AppSec, you know, security engineers have almost no visibility and no control over what is actually happening there. So right. let's, let's clarify that the, the issue, what's the source of the issue is you have no control over what's happening at the client side runtime environment, right? That's very interesting. So, I mean, you can't, as you put it, right, you can't scan and, and check this early, early on in like the CICD pipeline of deployment to content out to a website, you have to check it almost after all of the content's been pushed out to maybe a staging environment before going to production, assuming your staging environment is a complete replica, including all of them, you know, social media tracking stuff on your staging platform, then you may have a shot at detecting this. But to be crystal clear, the tracking is going from the user's browser directly to the third-party social media endpoints. It's not actually flowing through any infrastructure that the company might have or run. Is that fair to say, Ivan? Yeah, absolutely. So if you just, we don't have a diagram here, but if you just sure. visualize a diagram, the client-side code is instructions are served from the initial package is served from obviously the, the server, whatever. Right. You know. Um, or microsite, and then it triggers all other code to be loaded from anywhere in the world, from any wow. AWS bucket or any CDN. And then right. that code has ability to run anything else. There is a couple of ways to, you know, teams and you know, organizations try to control it with the CSP, but CSP, mm -hmm. when it's implemented, you know, content security policy in this case, it's implemented, it breaks a lot of things. It just actually right. prevents a lot of things from working. So uh, a typical shortcut or workaround is to enable a bunch of domains. And it actually defeats the purpose <laughs> of having the CSP because you just right. enabled everything. So all the, the code in the diagram, if you visualize it, it's loaded directly. Imagine those lines or you know, the, the arrows pointing from external servers, AWS buckets, right into your user session. And then the data flow goes and the data collection happens at the user session at the browser level, 
and it's sent directly from user browser back into someone's servers. And you have no wow. idea it's happening. By the way, we've done a study and released that study in April of this year. And we found that there were at least seven on average across more than 3,000 sites, on average of seven data transfers per script. So data transfers, wow. you're running, let's say, 100 scripts on your website that are loaded or script libraries. So that means on average, there are 700 data transfers happening outbound from user session into somewhere, like into third-party servers. Wow. So that just to show you the scale of the invisible, dark or shadow data transfers and code and the supply chain that is running into the client on the client side. Yeah. And I mean, this software can be complicated enough to instruct the browser to send an entire screenshot of exactly what the user is seeing at the page at the time that they loaded the page. So absolutely, there's a lot of privacy concerns around this stuff. From an operator's perspective, it seems like you have to regularly scan your website, all pages on your website, not just the front page, but you know, deep on your website to determine where these trackers exist and then figure out, all right, does this page contain sensitive information, client-specific, customer-specific sensitive information where you should not have a tracker enabled on it? And that's hard because like, if you think about it, most of the time, like a CMS doesn't have the ability to selectively turn on social media sharing on a per page basis. Usually it's site-wide, right? It's a single checkbox that you turn on and it's deployed all the, all the way through. I, I think content management systems need to get smarter about selectively turning the stuff on or off so that they can absorb the burden of this. Because quite frankly, I don't see how you can expect a marketing person to figure this out. You may have to like manually embed tracking within the code that you're pushing out to your website rather than relying on this site-wide feature in order to actually comply with these terms. Is that kind of the state where we're at with how things are done right now? In a way, yes. But again, I would just want to pick on a couple of important definitions. Sure. Like, and I heard you say a scan every page. Yes, but let's define what scanning means. All right? Sure. Scanning, if you use a typical like code scanning tool or security scanner, you will see code and sometimes some elements of a third-party code, if it's directly loaded from the header of the page, from the index of the page. I don't want to mention any tools, but there's everyone has good experience with security scanners. So let's put it aside for a moment. And then let's look at actually what Google is really good at. They're good at crawling sites. And, and let's define the difference between scanning and crawling. So crawling... When Google crawls or any other crawlers crawl sites, uh, pages, they understand what's on that page. They understand what it is talking about. They understand what that purpose of the page is. They understand uh, maybe even some often quality content. They understand if it was written by generative AI or it was written by humans. So they rank and derank. So the difference between scanning and crawling, where crawling is different, is that it gives you context in from the right. real human person's point of view. So when somebody like Google is crawling a page, they try to understand what a real human, a real visitor will see and will it be valuable to that visitor or not? And that's how they will you know, either rank or derank some of the pages. So 
when it comes to your question, like, is it scanning every page? Yeah, scanning is better than not doing anything. But right. crawling is actually going to give you that context of everything else that is happening at the browser level, right? So when it comes to best practices, it's actually crawling is will give a lot more visibility and will give you much deeper coverage of what is happening inside of user session rather than you know old school scanning. Yeah, so that's first. So it actually starts with the visibility. Like you can't manage what you don't know that you have and and, and which you cannot measure. So first you need to establish some kind of baseline. Here's actually what we have. Use a crawler. We are, one of our products is a crawler, but use any crawler that gives you a good contextual information, like almost like, a, almost like an attack surface map of your client site. Mm-hmm. The next step, what we see is, whether it's privacy teams and security apps, uh, security engineers teams, they say like, holy, man, holy shit, we have hundreds of pages, if not thousands. It's impossible to focus on all of them. Like out right. of all of those thousands, like which ones do we pay attention to? Like what is ranking the highest in the risk? And usually it's the pages that collect the most sensitive information. And they already know like, whether it's the passwords, the IM data, whether it's the payment card or healthcare or anything else users fill in into the forms or anything that is sensitive that is presented to the users on, this, on, on the pages, such as, you know, maybe there's a screen, like you said, like screen recording or, you know, session recording right. could be running and sees your bank account transfers and balances and so on. So, yeah, so then prioritizing out of, like maybe there's only a dozen pages that, are the most critical out of the hundreds, if not thousands of pages that you have. And then focusing your first kind of response and first set of hardening steps only on those pages. And then to your question, like what are the CMS systems or any other systems that they use to harden, to prevent say even you know, pixel tracking on those pages? It is actually pretty difficult, pretty hard to prevent that by default. Let's start there is that JavaScript is running vast majority of the websites and web pages. Right. Right? And there is no security permissioning built into the JavaScript model. Like there's it just, you cannot set, read and write permissions or like access or block certain elements of the page. You can like create subframes and like you can you know, start kind of toying around with that. But that often defeats the whole purpose of tracking because that now right. you don't know what was happening, what was not happening yeah uh, yeah so we do see a lot of companies really clamp down and upsec teams clamp down on anything that they consider to be a secure zone so once you are authenticated to the page they want to remove as much as possible from that secure zone but that said they also do need to track users like they you know the user product management teams they need to know which pages have bugs or which pages visitors use the most so they still need to have some kind of tracking and sure. that, that's another kind of shameless plug, like for CTO and co-founder through like Retali, it was like a couple of years ago, like, this is a big problem. Why does JavaScript not have it? Like, why there's no security permissions? Let's build it. So he developed a, a small library that any developer can use to set permissions. Like, hey, just like on an iPhone or, you know, Android phone, you can right. set permissions to this app doesn't have, you block it from accessing your microphone contacts and geolocation and another app is permitted. So. That's kind of developer's point of view. He looked at it and approached it from a point of view, like let's enable developers to actually set permissions to do that. So that's a, that's an approach that is becoming pretty popular is actually, why don't we just set permissions? Like, hey, we can run Facebook or you know TikTok tracker, 
but it should not have access to password field and you know login or sign up form and any of the keystroke that people type in. So let's just block it. So that's another technique that is becoming popular. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. This this might be motivation to convince a lot of website operators to migrate what used to be external tracking tools and move them in house just to avoid a lot of the liability associated with this. Because as you put it, there's a legitimate reason to track user activity from just performance standpoint, right? Making sure that your website is working correctly, the web app is functioning correctly, but not necessarily collect a ton of data specifically attributed to the user and all of their sensitive information. Not only that, but also like proving to legislatures and lawmakers, hey, you're working correctly. Here's an audit trail of exactly all the efforts that we're doing just to avoid the liability. Gosh, that's got to be huge. I mean, I think we're just beginning to see the effects of this ripple out through not just one industry, but many different industries that historically relied on this technology. It'll be interesting to see what happens the next three, six, nine months from now as this plays out. Absolutely. And by the way, since next year looks like third-party cookies will be phased out, let's call it broadly, by you know Google and Chrome and Alphabet. And that will definitely introduce a lot of the changes in, in that space. And uh, I do agree that's actually becoming a really interesting approach overall for the ad tag and ad network direction of how they will be delivering the value to businesses because businesses need that value but doing it in a compliant, secure, and respective to users way. Wow. Yeah. Very complicated. Well, thank you so much, Ivan. This has been an absolute pleasure talking with you about all these different issues. It's wonderful getting your insights on very complicated topics that we're just now starting to scratch the surface of. Thank you so much for your time. And to our audience here at The Threat Show, in case you're have follow-up questions or want to know more about this topic or any other topic, please DM us at The Threat Show. Stay tuned for next week where we'll be covering more interesting threats of the week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the threat index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats.